Murder, an epic game of cat and mouse with life or death stakes, and the hive mind of the internet. These are the intertwining threads of Mark Lewis's Netflix sensation, Don't Fuck With Cats. One of the great joys in making this podcast is the opportunity to connect with other filmmakers and to learn how they do what they do and why. In having these conversations, I'm constantly struck by the idea, huh, so that's how you do this shit. As a director, you rarely get to spend time on someone else's set. Cinematographers do, production designers do, everyone else in the crew of a film set has the opportunity to work with countless different directors on different sets and see how they do it. But filmmakers rarely have that opportunity. So it's in conversations like these where we learn how directors do what they do. So without further ado, I give you a conversation with Mark Lewis. Mark, it's funny. Uh, you and I obviously swim in the same waters on a, you know, on a lot of fronts. On the, on the, on the crime front. On the, you know, obviously the documentary front. On the. Um, I guess, sort of tech front as well, though both neither you nor I seem to be able to send an email or, um, you know, basically get our podcast recording simultaneously. So we've got that in common as well. Yes, we do. Um, no, but it's interesting. Um, you know, what I was kind of in the interest of jumping in, what I was thinking of when I was rewatching Don't Fuck With Cats is also in light of your background, you made the Silk Road documentary, I just made the Silk Road feature. Um, yes. and, and, and what was sort of striking about Don't Fuck With Cats as I was you know, revisiting it is in many ways, it's this sort of blend of similar elements to what I was exploring both in Night Stalker and in Silk Road. And the, um, I guess the sort of the rivers that we're swimming in or the, the sort of shared DNA is, 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 is quite interesting that we have, that we've both been drawn to and, and kind of fascinated by these stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always been a fan, you know, as a documentary maker, I obviously like real stories, true stories. And I haven't always done true crime, but I do have a fascination for, I mean, I've, I've always been, you know, quite a kind of true crime novel reader. And, you know, I've loved like whatever James Patterson novels or whatever those kind of things or Thomas Harris and so on. And so I guess I've been drawn to those kind of stories. And I guess, yes, having made the Silk Road documentary which was some years ago now, um, I guess what I liked about that film, I'd really been drawn into to that story originally because of, I don't know, I wanted to do something um, zeitgeist and a kind of contemporary story and a contemporary medium and been drawn into the whole sort of eerie dark world of the of the dark web but it was a kind of true crime story that took place in the dark web and I and I found that really fascinating you know having read and watched countless um, uh, true crime tv series or whatever yeah suddenly you find one that's in a very very contemporary setting uh, you know, in the internet, I, I had really found that fascinating. And I guess sort of having sort of um, swum around in that world, making that film, I've been on the lookout for something else that was sort of similarly intriguing and sort of in a similar kind of milieu and, and had come across the story um, of Luca Magnotta and his, and his murder. Um, because of that, because of just, I guess I was just sort of intrigued by that world. Um, well, that's, it, I just, I'm sorry, I just, you just brought, you just made me think what, what's a, what's a fascinating um, uh, sort of, I guess, subplot to all this is, so I remember when I first read about the Silk Road story, and it was like the day after Ross Ulbricht was arrested in the you know sci-fi section of the Glen Park Library in San Francisco. I remember, and I was off shooting some true crime thing, and I remember vividly sort of opening the newspaper and thinking like, "That's a movie." There's you know there's some like fascinating story there, and then similarly, and I and I had sort of forgotten this 
um, you know, in the sort of intervening time between, you know, and revisiting Don't Fuck With Cats. But I had been also equally riveted by the Luca Magnata, Magnata story when that broke and sort of voraciously researched it because like you, I'm kind of constantly looking for that confluence of crime and tech and whatever else. And weirdly, I turned away from that story because, and this may sound sort of ironic and silly, it, it seemed too dark to me at the time. And I wasn't quite sure what the way in was. So I'm kind of curious what your um, journey was from the Silk Road documentary to searching for similar subject matter to locking on Luca and then your your approach. Yeah, well, I suppose, look, at first it was a tech story, I guess. But the thing that was much more interesting for me, as with all of these stories, I, I guess if I read something in the papers or whatever and feel a bit like your reaction that you were just describing now, it jumps out you like, this is a movie. That just automatically kind of, you know, piques my interest. I, and I think, you know, I, I guess my style has always been to try and tell films in a cinematic way. That's not just how it looks visually or how you film your interviews or how you film your visuals. It's, um, you know, it's how you tell it. It's the storytelling. And I think if there's something that I read that feels like, it would work as almost like a kind of scripted drama. I mean, it naturally works like that. Mm -hmm. Then you've really got me intrigued. And there's no doubt that having done the Ross Ulbricht story, the Silk Road story, which was very much, you know, a, a, a gripping story, the same reaction that you had, it felt like a movie, that when I was looking around for something new to do, this one literally kind of leapt off the pages of the newspapers to me. This felt like, wow, yes, yes, it was a really, really dark story, but it did feel like, gosh, this is, this is, this is almost so crazy that it does feel like a kind of dark Thomas Harris thriller or something. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what piqued my interest. And I know what you mean when you say, wow, is it too dark? Because... I don't think I've ever really been interested in kind of kind of making kind of serial killer porn. I don't, I, I don't you know, there are a lot, we, we work for similar people sometimes and, and there are lots of broadcasters out there, you know, that, you know, just like to flash up serial killer stories and it's all rather lurid. And I guess I don't really, I have never really wanted to do that thing. It slightly mm -hmm. kind of appalls me. And I think the way into this story which we sort of found through a bit more research and the thing that made this really different was that it wasn't it wasn't just about a, a grisly murder i mean certainly it, it was a grisly murder but it wasn't just about that the, the the story really started kind of 18 months before the murder with um the the, the start of the, the the internet sleuths the amateur yeah. sleuths the, these people who had uh, a, a huge group of, of people, you know, at one point, sort of, you know, over 10,000 people who had all been hunting for this guy that was posting animal abuse videos. And because, you know, when you, you saw the journey of this of this guy, Luca Magnotta, from animal abuser to, to killer of a, of a person, the story really started, you know, way back, 18 months before. Mm -hmm. And that had barely been written about really in, in the papers. There were some articles, but not much. Nobody had really interviewed these internet sleuths who we very quickly found out through, through um, locating them, finding them, um, convincing them to, to talk and chat to us over the phone, that there really was an unbelievable story here. It was really, in in some ways, not a, about. In, in some ways, not about. If you understand what I mean, not about Luca Magnossa, but uh, more uh, about uh, the hunt, the hunt for him that had started. I mean, literally a year and a half before, and that was to me an amazing story. And as I say, having read, you know, low, countless kind of James Patterson novels and Thomas Harris novels and all those sorts of things, what really presented itself to me was this is oh my God, this is like a real cat yeah. and mouse game I'm pardon the pun yeah. it's a real cat and mouse game that started so long and was an incredible journey for these internet sleuths as as month after month they tried to hunt down this animal abuser who they knew who they knew inexorably was moving towards um murder. killing 
person. Yeah. Well, and, and, and so it's so interesting. I think, well, let me, let me reframe what you're saying because it's, it's like resonating. I'm hearing the bells kind of ringing in my head because when I went to go make the Night Stalker story, I was very much um, kind of acutely aware, Hey, I don't want to be doing something that is lionizing or heroizing Richard Ramirez. I'm actually like not interested in it. It's sort of weirdly off-puttingly like I, I, I want to go the other way. But when I found the humanity of the detectives working it and the victims and the toll it had take, taken on all of those people, civilians and otherwise, then that was to me what, what sort of I was able to emotionally hook into. And so I think what you're really identifying is it's a question of perspective, right? Because suddenly like Yes, Luca Magnata's actions are the engine of the narrative that are driving your film, but it's the protagonists and the people who we are rooting in and who obviously a global audience was sort of magnetized to and sort of rapidly riveted by is these people. So I guess, when do you lock on to the fact like, oh, my movie's not Luca Magnata, it's the internet sleuths? Well, I think it was really early on. I don't think I would ever have just, as I say, I wasn't really interested in making serial serial killer porn. So I would never have, ma- I wouldn't have been interested in making a film, to be honest, about a murder and sort of, you know, and uh, and going into the, you know, I don't know, just from the murderer's perspective. I just, I wasn't really interested in that. So as soon as, you know, we we found this story, or, or I found the story of the of the sleuthing that had gone on for so long. And then started reaching out to them and then found Deanna Thompson and John Green, the two principal um, sleuths. I, 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 if you've watched the series, you know that there is a huge group of people, tens of thousands of people who are hunting for the, for the, uh, the kitten killer. But really, there was a select bunch, <clears throat> excuse me, only about 13, 14 people that kind of formed this kind of splinter group, Luca Intel, who were, uh, were trying to catch him. And the two principal um, sleuths within that tinier, smaller group were Deanna Thompson and John Green. And, you know, I mean, if you've watched the series, you can guess that the moment that you speak to Deanna Thompson and John Green, you know, wow, we've got an amazing series here because you couldn't or I couldn't and I probably never will come across better sort of protagonists for 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 a for a series than those two that incredible pair they are they were the most incredible um interviewees contributors and and for me the most unu- you know most unusual you know I, I love true crime um novels i watch a lot of true crime tv series um but here what we had were the most original sleuths you could possibly dream of you know most often if you make true crime series it's cops um or you know forensics officers or whatever that your protagonists here you had what two internet sleuths you know these were wholly unexpected characters yeah and they you know and you speak to diana i remember speaking to her for the first time on skype and i mean man she's she is so funny and she's really witty she's humble she's got an you know incredible also, so, also salty too in a great way yeah. yeah she swears like a trooper and she just is what she is and john green her kind of counterpart i mean they are bizarre together i mean i love them they are but they are bizarre together they are like kind of chalk and cheese they're like sort of two almost like misfit brother and sister they sort of love each other and get really get out on each other's nerves sometimes but they work brilliantly as a pair and with their team around them did the most phenomenal job so i knew that when when i spoke to them for the first time you know when we were developing the series at the beginning once they were found yeah you just thought bloody hell this is phenomenal we're never going to get better characters than this uh and then you know you're really off to the races i think well and it's something that you know not everybody necessarily knows, but docs need stars, just like feature films need stars. And I have had that same sort of, you know, really every time you make something, it's suddenly when you find your stars and your protagonists, because it's not just 
um, the story, it's the storytellers and the performance and the way they tell it. And I think one of the things that's so striking about the film, and it's like those two are absolutely amazing and their telling and their performance of it is absolutely amazing, but that extends across the board to the incredibly emotional performances you get from everybody, whether that's, um, you know, the, 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 I forget her name, but the female detective in Montreal, who's oh, literally... Yeah, who's breaking down, you know, and those kind of like powerful moments of emotion or with like Luca's mother. And you're getting these kind of performance after performance that is um, riveting and powerful and unexpected. Talk about how you kind of engender the trust to be able to get those performances. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because lots of people have said to me, I mean, lots of times now, they said, God, are those two actors? They, they literally think they're, you know, like really brilliant actors. And, and, and you are right, I suppose it is a kind of performance. Although, you know, at the same time, you're, you're telling these people that you don't want them to be sort of something that they're not. You don't want to kind of feed them a performance but it is true that you know my role with with these people is to get get a performance I suppose but I, I see it in a slightly different way it's to get them to tell their story mm -hmm. in the best way that they possibly can better than they've ever told it before it's like okay if you were sitting across from me you know next to a fire or whatever, and you are going to wow me with your story. How can we work together so that you can tell it in the best way that you ever, ever, ever have? That's the trick. Yep, beautifully and, said. And I think the way that I have done it, I suppose there's lots of things that I would do. I mean, you're right to say the word trust. I mean, nobody's going to really open up and tell you their story and reveal how they felt moment by moment, blow by blow, you know, and, and, and really kind of open up their soul about how they felt something unless they trust you. So I guess the first, I mean, this sounds dumb, but like the first way that you do it is by being nice. I mean, I'm, hopefully I'm, an, I'm, I'm a nice guy. And, and so I try to be really open and really incredibly friendly and incredibly trustworthy with them because if you don't establish that trust then you're just not going to get there and that means really um getting to know someone getting to understand them getting them to understand what they're worried about when they tell the stories and really working with them to make sure that they feel 100 percent comfortable about telling their story in the most sort of honest way that they ever have so first of all it's trust of course then it's time, uh, you know, we, I speak and with my producer, Felicity, we would speak to these, the contributors for hours um, on the phone or on Skype before we ever go out to meet people. And then we spend lots of lots of time with them really getting to know the story, because I think the other way to get that kind of comfort level is if, 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 if the contributor, Deanna or John Green or whoever else is in the, in the series feels that you really know the story back to front, um, then there's a kind of an even greater level of trust, I suppose. Cause you've invested and you know, the material and you yeah. are, you are loving their story as much as they yeah. are in some way. And remember this, you know, when we made this series, it was, I think in 2017, 2018, I think we were actually making it, but the, the murder had happened in 2012. The animal abuse videos were 2010. So, you know, it was some time ago. And so myself and Felicity, the producer, we had to like pour over all of the records, tens of thousands of pages of Facebook, you know, posts and so on, so that we could actually put together the timeline of things. Because, you know, people don't remember all of the things, right? They don't remember. You have to, you have to map it. You have to go back yeah. and remap so it. So, yeah. You create the timeline. You get to know it really intimately. You go through it with everybody to make sure that you've got that timeline out. Because that's the other trick for me, which is um, like I don't want to have in my films any narration. There's no voice of God saying, and then Deanna did this, and then there's none of that. It's just got to be them telling their stories because if it's going to be a movie, if it's going to feel like a movie, then it's got to be these people telling you their story 
blow by blow, moment by moment, as it happened in in the in the chronology that it happens. So you've got to take them back right to the beginning, and so therefore you need to know the timeline, you know, literally inch by inch. So once you've got that and you've established that trust, then you're right, is about so how do you get that kind of whatever you want to call it performance? How do you get them to tell authenticity? Them? Yeah, whatever you right. want to call it. And I guess what I, I mean, I, I write it, I, I, I write out, I write the story um, from conversations, you know, that I've had with them. It's not, I'm not making it up or anything. I'm just, I, I, I know their story because I've, uh, because I've researched it. I've spoken to them loads, researched every document that's out there to make sure that we can get it straight. Um, and then I will write it out based on things that they've said to me. And then I guess it's able, I'm able then to map it out in a way that is sort of linear, I suppose. And then you can sort of present that back and workshop it with the contributor so that they can tell it in a, in a kind of linear way. And there will always be ideas and thoughts that they have had, you know, that they have described to you that sometimes, you know, I need to go away and kind of write out in sort of better words. And it's not like I feed them lines, lines I could say, but I, for example, with Diana, I would have, for example, the the end of the series when we talked about the complicity of of all of us in in Luca's crimes you know she had talked about feeling guilty and not not even being sure about whether she should do the documentary so I knew these kind of thoughts were really in her head but then you know I can go back to her and say well, what you mean is it's like complicity isn't it it's about are we complicit yeah, yeah yeah that's what I mean that's what I mean okay well then is this what you mean and you kind of workshop ideas and and give words and helpful suggestions so that she really will take on board these kind of ideas. And then when you ask the questions in the, in the interview, she will spit them out in a way that is in her words, but maybe helped by some kind of thinking or thoughts or words or terms that I may have helped find her so that she can feel confident in how she tells the story. And that would work for all of the, all of the contributors in the show. A, absolutely fascinating. Um, and I've got a couple of questions specifically about that methodology, um, because frankly, it's it's um, I recognize a lot of what you're saying. And then in certain ways, I the way I do it is like everybody, you know, you never get a chance as a director to be on somebody else's set. So it's like you never know how anybody else does it. We're all kind of finding our way. Right. That, that's sort of the weird, you know, uh, island like nature of directing. So my question for you is, how are you preserving because there is such powerful emotional moments that you're achieving. And how are you not um, exhausting the emotionality or, or the emotion, I suppose, in rehearsing or in pre-discussing it so that it still feels fresh and as if it's being told for the first time when the story is being told? I think that's a really, really good question. I th and I do think about this a lot and I think you are right. You can't over rehearse a story because otherwise you lose the spontaneity. You're never going to get the emotion. They'll begin to use exactly the same words. It'll feel pat and dry and rehearsed. And so you have to be careful. You don't do that. So I think that when, when I talk to people um, about the story and really get to know it, it's, you know, it's more of a kind of conversation, a bit of a question here, a bit of an answer there. And so it, it never feels like an interview, I suppose, I, or the kind of interviews that I would do uh, that are filmed. It's more like really getting to know the story so that they just feel confident that you know it. And as I say, you can workshop some of the principal ideas, but you do have to reserve energy and emotion for, for you know, the day that you actually film the interview for sure and having said that I kind of script or have a, an idea of what exactly that's the story that I, I would like to get from them based on what they've already told me uh, you know in the interview chair and that is kind of on my knee when I'm when I'm uh, across from them asking them the questions that doesn't mean that I can't you know free for I can't sure go off, script inquiry or go off script or you know follow some rabbit hole if I feel it's going to be interesting some new thought that actually they've not told me before and that's suddenly come up in a spontaneous moment within the interview I absolutely can do that but you were right I sort of feel that I need to reserve some spontaneity the other thing I suppose is is in the when you're interviewing someone I mean I 
I'm older than you are. I can I can tell I've been doing this sort of for a long time, and I've done, you know, I don't know, thousands thousands of interviews and current affairs shows and history films and science films over the years. And I guess my thing, I really love interviewing people. I mean, I really, really, really love it. Um, I really enjoy it. I I I, I enjoy the. Okay, sometimes it's just this in, incredibly intimate, emotional thing. Sometimes it's a bit of a sparring kind of thing. I don't, I, you know, depending on the person, it can be a very different dynamic. But if I'm trying to get a story which is involved and complicated, a complicated but well-told story, but with sort of emotional moments, then I guess what I try to do is get them to relive it. Normally, I think people don't tell the story in the way that it, unfolds you know blow by blow if, if Diana were to have told me her story about Luca Magnotta she'd probably have said something like oh and you know the, the, the real thing about when I uh, hunted Luca Magnotta was um I remember when I nearly found Luca it was you know she would she would tell the story with retrospection yes that she it, she's she's not telling it retrospectively she's she's telling it with hindsight and you have to take her or whatever interviewee you're you're filming back to the moment when when they didn't know what would happen at the very end. And so if you can do that, then I think you can get people to relive the emotions and feelings that they felt at that moment in time. So having established what the timeline of the story is and you know the exciting moments, if you can get that timeline straight, and sit them down in the chair and you're there confident that you know it as well as I do, they do and can hold their hand if necessary to remind them of the steps and the, and the moments that took place in a particular story or investigation, then you can get them to relive the emotion of, of those moments. And equally, I think the most important thing to do as an, as an interviewer, as a director, is to create what I would call is like a kind of bubble of intimacy. You know, yep. um, you're sitting across in the chair, you know, and crews are kind of getting bigger and bigger and bigger these days as, as documentaries become, you know, more and more flash and cinematic looking. And that's all great. But, you know, I prefer to keep the crews small and, um, certainly that are on the floor in front of the interviewee because you want to try and make create this bubble of intimacy where things feel private. Yes. And if they're private, then they will share their, you know, deepest, darkest emotions, right? So, so, so I try to create this bubble of intimacy where an interviewee can see me, but they can't see the producer and even the DOP, the cameraman is sort of, you know, he or she is behind their lead parrot camera and, you know, not exactly visible because you just want to create a, a kind of space where it's just you and the interviewee. And, and if you've got that right and you've got the timeline right and you've, then you can create that intimacy where they will feel it, where they will really feel what they felt moment by moment. So super fascinating. There's, there's two ideas that you've just articulated that I want to kind of like unpack a little bit um, further, which are that in a way, these are past tense stories, right? The, the films that we make, that you and I both make, or are, are, are in this or in this particular instance anyway, are past tense stories. And yet we're having them unfold in a way that needs to feel present tense. So what sort of what you're saying is in a way, there's almost this sort of hypnotic thing that's taking place where you are rewinding that person back in time. And so that as the story is then unspooling before the camera, it actually is happening in this present tense way so that you can construct a present tense narrative, which is fascinating. Completely. I mean, that's exactly right. You, 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 if something's going to be really exciting, I, I mean, my ambition with this, series was i think it when i read about it it felt like a thriller and i wanted it to feel like a thriller i wanted it to feel like an intelligent thriller uh so it would have the sort of i don't know the flow of a of a thriller novel or a thriller movie um but with this i don't know i guess with with something intelligent to say and that was always my ambition for it so by getting people to tell it in a kind of present tense way 
feeling the things that they felt at that moment and to rewind to to the very beginning and to only know as much as they knew back then and then to tell that story sequentially to relive it will make it feel as close as a documentary can get to to um uh, you know exactly as it happened and it will feel like uh, as exciting as a thriller okay so really interesting um in terms of the 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 construction of it and there's a couple of other like ideas that i want to explore with you or, or have you articulate is there's a you're, you have both, in this case, a very propulsive narrative. So you have this thriller-like engine that is driving it, and you have this construction that is sort of thriller-like in terms of the handoff of perspective from character to character and the progressive reveals of information, what those card turns are when you're revealing when. Um, and so um, as you are building the construction of this, when you take it into post from what you've shot, how much are you mentally editing sort of where the story goes? How much are you paper editing before it goes to editors? And then the overall story construction, how much of that is, um, are you walking away from the interview chair with knowing how it goes and how much are you finding in the edit? Um, okay, so I think it, for this particular series, obviously it changes from what show I do, but I, and as I say, I do kind of write it. I write what, how I think the story would unfold in the best possible way, based on what my contributors have spoken to me about in research. I will write it in this case. Um, I wrote it out and actually, especially the first film was almost pretty much by the end in post in the edit, it was pretty much, as I thought it would be, as I'd sort of kind of scripted it out and, you know, as the interviews turned out to be, the first film and to, to a fair degree, the second film. The, but by the edit, the story and the denouement, the ending had changed, changed more. Not completely, but quite a lot. And that was because, well, while we were filming the series, we were kind of on our own roller coaster journey mm -hmm. of discovery ourselves. And we were finding out stuff that, you know, live on the ground, um, right. seeing clues that maybe, I mean, to be honest, even, you know, the cops hadn't seen. Give me and, an example of that. So I know what you mean. Well, for, I mean, for example, so, you know, in the final uh, episode, it is revealed that, uh, Luca Magnotta was murder was a kind of sick homage to basic instinct. Mm -hmm. And I kind of knew it's basic instinct had been kind of mentioned, you know, relatively readily as a sort of influence for the murder because uh, it was filmed. Uh, Jun Lin, you know, the tragic, tragic um, victim, Jun Lin was murdered with an ice pick um, just like, the victims in basic instinct um and there was a you know reference in i don't know if you remember at the end of the first episode um a british journalist is contacted by an anonymous yep. email obviously luca um and uh, in within the the body of the email it says something he says that like he's going to progress to killing humans and killing is not like smoking with smoking you can quit which is a very famous line that sharon stone gave um, in Basic Instinct. So Basic Instinct had always been around as an idea that this was po possibly, probably um, a kind of sick homage to, to the Basic Instinct. So we, we always wanted, we knew that we would do that as a kind of reveal at the, at the very, very end. And that was always in my, um, in my writing, in, in, my, in my sort of scripted idea of where we would go. But while doing the research, while doing the filming, actually not the research, while we were doing the filming, we came across sort of some incredible things that just really kind of tied that whole homage together, things that people hadn't seen. So we'd filmed the body of the, the series, I'd edited it almost completely, and I went out to the States, to, to Vegas, to, to show the kind of relative, pretty much fully cut films to Deanna and John Green. I wanted them to be, to see it before, because I, you know, to 
to see that they were happy, that they were so, so key to the whole process. I wanted to see to them to see it. I did that in Vegas. And then we went to Montreal because I needed to do a bit of kind of pickup filming with the detectives there, and specifically Claudette Hamlin, the detective. I wanted to get some great shots of her kind of in a thrillerish kind of way going through her homicide department. So I was going to, to film that. And <clears throat> while we were there, we went to see the two kind of head honchos of the homicide department in Montreal, Claudette's bosses, mm -hmm. really nice guys. I'd met them before. And again, I wanted to kind of tell them what was going to be in the series. I didn't show them the films, but I, I wanted to tell them. I didn't want to be surprised that they'd been so helpful to us. I didn't right. want them to be surprised. And so I kind of walked them through um, what was going to be in the films. And at the end of the conversation, which was kind of in a mixture of English and French, my French is kind of a bit ropey, but, but, but um, we spoke, I said, oh, I think you filmed the um, Luca being brought back, um, you know, after he was brought back from Berlin, he was brought back on a, on a, um, a, a Canadian military uh, carrier and then transported to the detention center in you know, mm -hmm. outside Montreal. And I said, oh, I think you filmed that, didn't you? And they went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd seen some, some bits and pieces of this, but I knew that they'd filmed more. The cops had filmed more. Right. Because it was a huge story. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, is there any way that maybe I could have that footage? And they were like talking in French, blah, 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 blah. Because I understood what they were talking about, but they were talking in French. And, and eventually they said, yes, yes, yes. Okay, you can, you can have that. We'll, we'll get you um, some DVDs of, of that footage. And then I just thought, oh, I should just ask. I said, you didn't film the interrogations of huh. me, and uh, they said, well, yes, 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 no, we did. And okay, this footage had never been seen before. I mean, I didn't even, it was a complete amazing um, hunt. And they said, yeah, 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 we did. I said, oh, well, do you think maybe possibly we could have that as well? And they were like talking away in French, blah, 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 blah. And then eventually they said, um, yes, yes, okay, you can have that. We'll get, get you the two DVDs. So they go off and they give us the DVDs. I'm looking over at my... Um, uh, producer who was in the room with me felicity and like jaw drop we're about to do this kind of you know joy dance and um they brought in the dvds and we said thank you very much and left and actually my mac my, i've got a mac air and it doesn't have a dvd player and it obviously huh, right. so and i still had another few days left in canada so i didn't actually play these dvds till i got home to london where we were editing the show and where we were nearly about to finish the edit. I think we had like days left. So we were pouring through these DVDs of the interrogation, which were amazing. And then we saw this moment when Luca in the interrogation asks for a cigarette, takes the cigarette and then crosses his legs. So, you know, if anybody who's watched Basic Instinct, everybody knows about this iconic moment where Sharon Stone crosses and then uncrosses her legs. Yeah. And then uncrosses, uncrosses her legs. It's the most... I mean, it's one of the most famous shots, moments of, of In movie history. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody knew about it. And so all of a sudden, bits, you know, coupled with the story of the ice pick and how it had been spray painted silver, how the, the composition of the film, which we could see was exactly the same as the opening shots of Basic Instinct. You know, the, the line from the movie. And then suddenly this kind of, you know, leg cross thing. We had the most amazing sort of you know denouement reveal a kind of like a usual suspect reveal amazing possibly have imagined but that was all so that was I'm that was a gift that was a gift from the cinema gods after you were ready to lock picture so was it so was so yeah i mean it was pretty thrilling that i remember my editor michael like when we saw that i said look look look, look that's the same holy thing. shit yeah. <laughs> like oh my god let's recut it so um yeah that was pretty exciting so yeah so not so in the edit well this goes back sorry your question was about a million years ago um yeah so things did change a lot in the third film and actually also we had loads of stuff that we'd filmed for the story of him in paris and in berlin which was really fascinating but didn't make it into the into the uh, you know i'd edited bits of it and it wasn't quite working and so we recut that third film to be sharper uh, and, and you know, I had scripted and, and got interview uh, material for a lot more in the final film, but in the end, I think partly because of these, you know, uh, reveals, these denouements being so good, 
And yeah, so it, beca it becomes a process of reduction, right? Where when you yeah. sort of remove anything that is fat, then suddenly what's there kind of coheres and, and pops yeah. in a way. Okay, so let me ask you a question because you bring up an interesting point, which is kind of the intertextuality so to speak, with basic instinct. And another one that sort of jumped out at me was um, when you are dealing with the, the videos that Luca had made and you are having your protagonists watch them instead of showing them to the audience for obvious reasons, which struck me as kind of like a point of contact with what Herzog did in Grizzly Man, right? Where instead of actually seeing the, the it's, it's, I guess it's the Hitchcock theory, right? What sort of what your imagination does is almost is more powerful than, than, than literally seeing it. Um, talk about that sort of decision. And um, the, I guess both the, um, strategic decision to do so as well as the practical emotional decision to do so yeah okay well i mean obviously the animal abuse videos and the murder video are horrific i mean they are beyond horrific and obviously i had i had to watch them and you know um the team had to watch them because um because there were clues within them that we needed to kind of tease out and, and get people to talk about. And, you know, there was so much evidence within the pixels of the, some of these videos that pointed to who the kitten killer or, or the murderer was. So we had to watch them, but they were horrific. And it was just so obvious. As I say, I never wanted to make serial killer porn. It would have been ridiculous, gratuitous to to air those I, we just didn't want to do that and you're right you know when you think of you know Werner Herzog and Grizzly Man it had been very powerful just to play the audio rather than the video so it was quite a quick decision for for me and my bosses and Netflix that that, that we couldn't shouldn't shouldn't rather than couldn't shouldn't show um those videos. It, 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 um, and I don't know from for more not just take I mean, taste reasons in so many ways, we shouldn't have done that because it would have made viewers switched off. It would have turned people, turned people away. It would have been disrespectful. Um, so, you know, really, we, we just knew we were never going to go there. But that said, there, were, there was a problem because, first of all, you had to understand why the hell 15,000 plus people were chasing this animal right. user. I mean, why? And it's because the the videos were so horrific. So we needed to convey that, or otherwise you wouldn't have understand why all these people were jumping in and madly, you know, looking all over the world for a for a kitten killer and pointing the finger often at the wrong people. But you had to understand that emotion, that drive. So we knew we had to do to to convey that in a, in a, in in some way. And then the other issue was that once you got stuck into the animal abuse videos, there were clues within them. Um, you know, They're the narrative, narratively essential for the audience yeah. to know as well. The cigarette packet, the vacuum cleaner, the wolf bedspread, um, you know, all those things, the, the music in the background, all those things were, were clues, the clues of this incredible thriller, this kind of thriller that feels like a Thomas Harris novel or whatever. They were all clues. So we knew we had to be able to show those. So then... With that in mind, that framed how much we felt we could show. We could show the, 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 the beginning parts of the videos before anything terrible had happened, um, you know, where the, the cats are first seen or where the body on the bed is first seen and no more. And we could show the frames which had the relevant bit, relevant clue, the vacuum cleaner or the wolf bedspread or whatever, we could show that that those kind of frames from from the from the videos because that would be evidentiary and you know obviously we could zoom in or zoom away right. from anything really hideous. Um, so that that became that became a sort of um, a, a rules I suppose that we followed. Mm -hmm. But we needed to convey the emotion of why people were driven to um, hunt this animal abuser, and so. I talked about it to Deanna a lot. John Green had seen them all and sort of dissected the, all of the videos a lot, both the animal abuse videos and the murder video. Deanna, um, like, I mean, she just like loves animals, just like loves yeah. them. She's 
loads of dogs and cats and and she and she just weirdly have never brought herself to watch the whole thing through the animal abuse videos through she just watched it so she she would get frames and look at the frames but she wouldn't watch all through so she never had so i talked to her about it well okay can we film you watching them for the first time because she'd never seen them for the first time and it really was i mean i felt bad because i knew it was going to be very emotional I knew that I wanted it, to be honest, to be emotional, because otherwise we're not going to understand why she and everybody else was so motivated. Um, and but it's so, a fine, it is a fine line, right? Because you're playing with someone's trauma in, 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 yeah, in a yeah. very real way. That's exactly right. You're playing with someone's trauma. And we discussed it, and she really said, no, 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 I think that we should do it. Um, I think that we should. And so we decided to do it in the interview chair. So she has that laptop propped up on her knee. You don't, the audience don't see what she sees, but they see what she feels. Yes. And that was, ended up being really powerful. And I'm incredibly grateful for her, grateful to her for having, you know, as you say, bravery. that trauma is very yeah. brave. Um, and it's very powerful. And it means that the audience, audience don't have to see it but they get to understand that this is, you know, unspeakable. Um, well, she's yeah. our, she's our surrogate investigator. She's also our surrogate audience, you know, witness having to bear witness to it. And it also, as an audience, it hooks us into the emotional heft and weight of the story without sort of forcing your nose in it in any kind of cheap and tawdry way. And, 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 and I think it was, brilliant and incredibly powerful decision uh, on your part and very brave on hers. Very brave of her. The, 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 the murder video though, we never got anybody to watch that. And actually the, there's an amazing, an extraordinary moment in um, the second episode where detective Claudette Hamlin, the, the, the lead detective on the ground um, sort of breaks down in the interview chair when she's recalling seeing the murder video for the first time and that you know we we didn't obviously get her to to um, watch the video again um, she obviously had seen it several times but that was a kind of case of a just a really immersive interview you know like again I say this sort of bubble of intimacy that we created between uh, myself and herself and you know I don't know. I mean, you have obviously interviewed loads of detectives and cops before, and you know, most of them, you know, never crack. There's no, you never get to the emotion. No, and they're all like, and we have these sort of funny way of talking about British cops. Sorry, this is a British thing. We, they, the cops here always go and oh, and then I proceeded in the southerly direction. You know, it's right. all right. The, the jargon and verbiage, right, right. Yeah, and they and they don't really reveal what they were feeling. Um, I, I think that we were fortunate with Claudette because she was just approaching retirement when we interviewed her. I mean, she was like weeks away from it. And this had obviously been a case that I don't think it had defined her career, but it had been one of the cases that had been incredibly important within her, her career. And, and obviously it was so sort of famous in Canada and, and there had been a lot of attention and, I think therefore she she felt quite emotional about it. So, you know, given that she was sort of coming to the ends of her career, maybe, I don't know, maybe that was the reason why she was more candid than many detectives are, apart from the fact that she is just, I, I mean, I really liked her such a lot. And I really liked her not only because she was clearly a brilliant cop, but also because she was so human and she she did dare to share what she felt and so when we were in the interview chair I mean I guess I try my hardest with everybody to get them to relive relive it but I, it was so obvious right from the beginning that she really did relive it and and that her story too you know with the whole trash bags behind the um behind the Decary Street building you know things had unfolded for her literally in a second by second way you know yes. one minute she's finding you know scrunched up posters and saws the next bit she's finding body parts the next point when she thinks it's luca magnotti who's the victim the next point you know, literally you know minute by minute of that day that she was uh, first on the crime scene was i think such a roller coaster for her and i and the truth was i think it was something like 11 o'clock at night she got called into this kind of they call it like a mobile command 
unit. It's like mm-hmm. a kind of Winnebago, I think, like a kind it's of a war room. Yeah, it's the war like war room essentially. Yeah, and she went in there, and, and somebody said, "Oh, there's a thing on the internet," and they watched the video there. And so, because I think she was reliving that day so much, she when she told the story of watching that video, she 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 broke down in the in in the interview with with me, and. I think it's an incredible moment. I mean, I've never it's, had. It's astonishing. Yeah, it's astonishing. And 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 I'm really grateful that she did because it's not a clinical story. This is a story of a man, of a really incredible guy, Jun Lin. He's really lovely. He had fantastic friends. He was so loved. Who died? Who was murdered? This is a human story, and she and her sort of outpouring. Um, um, in the interview, I think was recognition of that. This was this isn't a, a, the story of a murderer; it's the story of a victim, and she really felt that. And she said that you know when she watched that video, having sort of I mean opening up all of these trash bags and things all day long, she said like all of a sudden she felt like she was witnessing the murder firsthand. She was watching it; she felt yeah. like she was behind the murderer and couldn't stop it. And I think that's, you know, it's that powerlessness that it was too late. She knew every detail of, she could put, put together every detail by then of, you know, what that T-shirt was or what that poster was or what that um, ice And yet the outcome was preordained. But, yeah, but she had to watch it. And I, I think she must have, watching that video, she must have felt just such an immense powerlessness that she couldn't stop it. And yet she was watching it sort of live, if you sort of mean. Wow, that's so 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 beautifully and and sort of powerfully and, and poetically put on your part. And what I was thinking of as you were talking is, and I think this is the sort of like magic and power and beauty and potency of the of the series is, it's the striking humanity of everyone that comes through at every turn. And murder and animal abuse is the most sort of dehumanizing thing that one person can do to another. And it strikes me that your deep empathy for your subjects is what elicits the profound humanity of all of those people, which I think is what all of us as an audience member are connecting to in such a deep and real way. Uh, well, that's very kind of you to say, and uh, I th- I think um, in terms of humanity, you, you know, you're you're right. Also, you're you're trying to capture that on film. But when I think about Luca's mum, Anna Yorkin, and the and the interview that she gave, I mean, that to me really revealed a sort of humanity, a, a, an unexpected yep. humanity. She wasn't just. I mean. She, she was such a lovely woman <clears throat> and it again it felt very compromising to be getting an interview from someone who still clearly just loved her son but kind of wore the weight of what he had done i mean she is sort of physically and emotionally ravaged by by guilt and pain what what her son did and it, again, it was really important for me to capture her humanity, to understand her re- really well and to understand what she had gone through. Though, in a sense, she was in, in, in some ways kind of acting as his spokesperson. Sure. Um, at the same I mean, both, time. Both, both things are true, right? At the, at, like, on the one hand, she is wearing the weight and pain of that. On the other hand, it is her son and she loves yeah. him. Yeah, and that is the conflict. And that really comes across... <clears throat> you know, in in her interview, I think she is both his sort of spokesperson, but at the same time, his mum, his mum that feels all of this stuff, uh, and you know, it, hers is a, as an a, and you know, look, obviously the greatest tragedy is for Jun Lin and his family. Nothing can possibly go near what happened to to, to that young man and and to his family, but, you know, <clears throat> equally part of the tragedy is also Luca's family because they have to live with the consequences of what he did. And his, his mum, who was really, I think, the, the only person that remained in contact with him from the family, I understand pretty much, um, you know, once he was in prison, you know, at the time we were doing the interview, she would speak to him 
I don't know, about two or three times a day on a, on, on a cell phone. And, you know, she, she, she was like his lifeline and, and, and yet she was having to tell a story, you know, her own story that was in, incredibly difficult for her to tell. It was traumatizing for her to tell. I'm, I'm, again, I'm incredibly grateful that she, she, she opened up and, you know, both stood up, if you know what I mean, for her son in trying to yes. explain the background of what had happened and the background of his life and communicating what he had told her and kind of being loyal as a mum. But I think it's obvious just from, you know, how she was and how she felt about Jun Lin and about she, I mean, she's talked about how she felt a connection with his parents, that they are two sets of, you know, she, their parents connected by, by this horrific crime. And, and there's no doubt that she, she felt the, the weight of that guilt. Um. I want to sort of finish with a thought that, that just occurred to me as you were pointing out those connections between June Lin and, and Luca's mother. And, and really what, in, in the same, I think, held true in my experience of making Night Stalker, for example, is what it is, is it's this constellation of people whose lives otherwise never would have intersected. You know, Deanna never would have um, intersected with Luca's mother, with Jun Lin. Like, th there are no points of contact. And yet, this violence that has been, like, slashed through the canvas puts all of these, uh, you know, atomized individuals suddenly in relation to one another. And I think that's what the film, you know, does, the series does so beautifully is... It's immersive in 360, and it connects all of these unlikely lives via the investigation, via the tragedy, via via the violence, and it's um, it's a profoundly powerful um, series that will, I think, really last. You've made something lasting and beautiful that people are going. I mean, tragic and 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 awful, but also beautiful and poetic that I think will last, you know, a long time. So. No, thank, thank you for saying. I, I think you're right about that. It's a very um, clever way to think about, well, about lots of films, definitely this series, one, one that I'm making now, I think similarly too, that it is like a constellation of, of people linked by, you know, one powerful son or whatever it may be. Um, because I think, you know, this story defined careers, defined lives, defined his mum's life, defined Jun's, Lin, Jun Lin's parents' lives, defined the cops, defined Deanna and John. It does, you know, there, there will be, they are sort of somehow, these group of people who've never met are kind of bound by, by, by this one story, by, by the horror of what happened. And it's funny, isn't it? Because as a director, as a filmmaker, you're the only one that's actually got to meet them all. Yeah. Um, a very, very privileged um, place to be, I think. I mean, I've, uh, I count my lucky stars that I do what I do um, because you are very privileged to meet everyone. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, by being as responsible as you possibly can be, you can kind of draw them to, together in, in, a, in, a, in a film which is truthful to all of their own experiences but where you get to see a kind of 360 perspective on the same, on the same thing. But it's weird, isn't it? That they don't know one another. I mean, I remember showing the film to people and, you know, and Jong and John Green were really amazed at, at, at Detective Claudette Hamlin and, and, you know, that moment when she broke down. I mean, they, I think they were really shocked by that because they didn't know her. They'd read about her, I think, but they didn't know her. And to all of a sudden, you know, there are the, the other people that, that, we, that they'd all read about or maybe seen on the news or whatever, and suddenly, you know, when they see them in the film are real people, real people with real Humanity. Uh, responses to the story. Yeah. And that's sh shocking for, it's as shocking for the contributors within the film as it is for the audience, I think. That's a, that's a beautifully put kind of evocation of what it is to be a documentary director because you really are, you know, all of these people are the spokes and they only know their specific spoke, which is their perspective on the story. And you get to be, you know, the, the, the quiet hub at the center that makes it all turn. And it's, it is, it's a, it is a, it is a privileged and powerful and, um, 
I guess, meaningful position to be in because you're bridging these people's lives and their stories in a way that this is a moment of these people's lives that is defining for them. And you're pulling all those threads together to be the center of it. And it is, it is a, it is a privileged and, and, and kind of amazing and joyful thing to be able to create something like that. So beautifully said. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's very true. I think we're very, very lucky um, to do what we do. Very lucky. Amen. I can't wait to see uh, what you do next, Mark. And I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for for taking the time today and and for and for your patience with uh, you know t- technical shenanigans and everything else. And uh, you know, I'd love to find uh, the opportunity for us to collaborate on something down the down the road if that ever eventuality ever comes up. Because I just think you're you're a super talent. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. It was really good to talk. And you like any time you want to have a chat, let's. Um... I'll, I'll hit you up. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. And thank you to Mark Lewis for making Don't Fuck With Cats. Keep cranking, big man. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. And the sound, magic, and mix comes from Nathaniel, post-up audio in Los Angeles. Music by Zydepunk. Additional guitar by Steve Pagliaro. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Bradley Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Please don't forget to subscribe, and thanks for listening.